Hello to all my fellow 101 podcast listeners. It certainly is great to be back on the air, and hard to believe we are already into the start of August. It is hard to believe that when I was on the air last, we were just finishing up uh, July. I don't know where the summer has gone, but it certainly has gone by quick, to say the least. But what I do know is that I am always glad to be back on the air when I have that chance uh, to be able to share with you all information on any um, subject or book topic series that I know is uh, of relevant uh, importance so that all of you can gain uh, a better understanding of not only um, the time in which an event took place, whether it was a battle or when a person, a particular person was living. The bottom line is that uh, learning essential history or learning history that is essential must not always be forgotten, but it is also something that must not be taken for granted either. You know, I'm constantly having to remind myself of um, not so much what I enjoy about history, but yes, having to remind myself that there are unpleasant things about history that can't always be overlooked, and that even uh, pertains to uh, subjects that I uh, do enjoy learning about, whether it's about the American Revolution, uh, the War of 1812, uh, even the Kennedy assassination. I've uh, read a fair number of books on that uh, particular matter, and I do find it hard to believe that this coming November will mark 60 years since uh, JFK was assassinated and how um, my parents' generation, that was obviously their 9-11 of the time in which they were living, uh, but how um, so much innocence was lost even uh, 60 years ago. Now, and in terms of uh, innocence, because when, when, we, when we talk about history, it is fair to say that each generation has experienced some form of uh, innocence lost, of, innoc of losing innocence, rather, I should say. And, uh, of course, I clearly remember when um, September 11th of 2001 happened. That was a day that not only would my generation never forget, but um, generations uh, before me, uh, being that of my parents, uh, my grandparents. I had three grandparents uh, still living when 9-11 happened. But um, for my grandparents, obviously it was Pearl Harbor. Uh, for my parents, it would have been the Kennedy assassination. And uh, for my, uh, for me, um, it was 9-11. Uh, but what I do know is that uh, when my wife and I, um, w when we were en route to Ohio for our summer vacation, which hard to believe was... We were on vacation um, at the start of last month. Um, that just doesn't seem possible, but yet it was. But when we were on vacation, uh, our first stop was at the United Flight 93 Memorial. And I know I may have mentioned that um, in another uh, podcast segment episode. Um, but when we were there, you couldn't help but... Um, it really was stepping back in time. I mean, it's been almost 22 years this September, but it, but I vividly remember where I was when I first learned about the first plane crashing in the tower, and my first thought was that it was a small uh, private plane, and then when I learned about a second plane, I knew that this was no random accident, that this was a deliberate act of terrorism. Uh, but... Uh, not only was uh, seeing the inside of the memorial as well as the outside, uh, both uh, inside and outside were both powerful, to say the least. Uh, but 
at the moment of uh, impact, there's a, a rock um, out in the heart of the uh, field, and the rock uh, represents the crater in which the plane, uh, the flight uh, United Flight 93, crashed on impact, uh, destroying lots and lots of trees, destroying a lot of things. But I also saw that after 9/11, or after September 11th, what painstaking efforts the government uh, went to to um, not only uh, seeing to it that a memorial was built, but restoring the area to give it some kind of hope, elegance. It has nothing to do with flaunting, but it, those whom sacrificed so much would have wanted some kind of um, restoration done, given that so much uh, damage had been done. Man's wrath, meaning man's um, inhumanity, what the hijackers tried to do, but yet the passengers fought back. Heroism. Those passengers, or all of those passengers being 40 passengers who fought the hijackers and, and, and prevailed, although they lost their lives, but they saved countless lives, whom countless other people's lives who might have uh, not been so lucky had they not taken such swift, bold, decisive action. So uh, for those of you who haven't been to the Flight 93 Memorial in um, Somerset, Pennsylvania, I strongly recommend going. You will, um, just so that you know when you go in there, you just know that you have to, um, it is something that a lot of you would have to relive, but you also have to ask yourself, what if that had been me on that plane? I would have joined hand, joined forces in a heartbeat to have fought those hijackers. I would have answered to Todd Beamer's um, phrase, let's roll. So, um, again, uh, as much as I do enjoy uh, learning about history and being able to uh, share with you all stuff that is uh, relevant, I try to do everything I can to um, make sure that what I tell you all is educational and into uh, the best of my ability to have uh, positive information. I do have to remind myself that, yes, some of the information I've told you all from various uh, podcast topics, while it is, while it does sound sad and somewhat maybe negative, um, we do have to remind ourselves that history is not always uh, pretty. We don't, we have to remind ourselves that history isn't always um, rosy, but we have to come away knowing that Whatever we've learned, we have to make sure that we do everything there is to um, take that knowledge and make sure that uh, whatever happened in the past does not repeat itself in the present nor in the future. So anyways, we have a lot of ground to cover in this uh, podcast segment episode of, of uh, Men of Patriotism, Courage, and Enterprise in Fort Meigs in the War of 1812. We uh, have to learn, uh, well, I was going to say we need to learn about... Um, where um, American forces are going forward. In other words, we have to find out if, in fact, the British and the Indians have what it takes to perhaps launch a second attack on Fort Meigs. So here we go with our leadoff question, our initial leadoff question. So let's get the show on the road. Uh, what activities were taking place at Fort Meigs come May the 10th, 1813, one day after British the day after British forces had departed and returned to Amherstburg, Ontario. 
Well, for starters, uh, troops whom were wounded underwent um, necessary uh, practices, or I should say procedures, in being looked after per their conditions. So if you've been wounded, uh, the, um, the team uh, medics on site would have uh, probably changed your uh, dressings or being your bandages. They would have also been looking at other, um, probably at other components of your body uh, just to make sure that you, you know, you were breathing fine, uh, that you, um, that you were just, that you were still feeling up to par despite uh, having been wounded. Secondly, all uh, necessary and appropriate repairs to Fort Meigs were getting underway or were uh, initially getting started. So, you know, it's one thing, yes, for the enemy to have uh, departed and returned um, back northward to Amherstburg, uh, a.k.a. the British and, the, um, and their Indian ally counterparts. But just because they've retreated back, it doesn't mean that you can, you know, sit back and party left and right like there's no tomorrow. Yes, you can rejoice. You can certainly rejoice, which we have done. But at the same time, we have to um, we have to take into consideration what is what's around us. In other words, yes, we have those whom whom obviously have survived, but we have troops that are wounded. So we have to take care of those whom are wounded, if they want to live to see another day, not only of life, but perhaps if another invasion of the fort were to happen, we want them to be prepared and be ready to go so that they can continuously uh, be able to lay everything on the line, like those whom uh, were not wounded. And then we also need to make sure that the fort is um, better fortified. Yes, you can make all the repairs, but even uh, repairs alone might need um, more improvements compared to the first go-around. So General William, Her William Henry Harrison reviewed the situation before him, knowing that despite American forces had prevailed, there's one thing that really, really uh, bothers him. Remember from, our, um, pre remember from the previous podcast, uh, we talked about um, Colonel William Dudley and how Colonel William Dudley um, did not um, abide by the orders. General Harrison was shouting at the top of his lungs, retreat, come back, bring your men back, don't go all the way into the woods. They, the Indians and the British, most notably the Indians, are on the run. Let them stay on the run. If they want to fight another day, fine, but we don't need to go into the woods and risk our own men's uh, safety. Who's to say that even half of them might come out alive? Well, the one thing that... Um, that is looming negatively in uh, General Harrison's um, mind, and it probably would have been in my mind as well, too, if I were in General Harrison's shoes, is knowing uh, that uh, Colonel William Dudley's uh, failed rescue attempt in coming to Major Isaac Shelby's aid had resulted in nearly 81% dead or wounded. So in other words, you know, Colonel William Dudley had about uh, an 800-man force, 650 of those troops were uh, dead or wounded, 81%. Only just fewer than 150 made it back, 150 at most. So that means only 19% came back alive. That's under, um, under a quarter. General Harrison did go about, um, even in the midst of um, being upset over um, 
Colonel Dudley's um, indecisive actions. In the midst of all of that, General Harrison uh, did find the time, and I applaud him for doing this, where he went about praising multiple militia companies, volunteers, and regulars whom valiantly answered the call of duty when it mattered most in securing the overall safety and well-being of Fort Meigs, given the exact opposite of what happened in the Michigan Territory during the uh, debacles at the River Raisin and uh, most notably at Fort Detroit when uh, General William Hull, or Brigadier General William Hull, surrendered Fort Detroit to Colonel uh, Henry Proctor without even putting up a fight. Truly an act of cowardice, in my opinion. But one thing I do know, and it probably would be fair to say, that had Colonel William Dudley survived this, um, had he survived, I do believe that he probably would have been court-martialed. In other words, yes, it would have been, it was one thing, yes, for Colonel Dudley to want to help his um, comrade and Major Isaac Shelby out. But sometimes officers need to uh, think about what's best not only for their troops, but they need to do what's best for those above them, meaning that if they are uh, under orders from a from an, a commanding officer, I mean, it's the old saying, you're either damned if you do or you're damned if you don't. But this was a situation where Colonel Dudley had already, he'd already prevailed by uh, piercing uh, almost a dozen uh, cannons. They had already taken... Um, they really had taken the fort, technically. But why, but why uh, put your uh, forces in grave danger, uh, given that you hadn't lost a single uh, loss of life um, going onward? I mean, uh, in the early stages of the fight. This is where I'm afraid people sometimes, or I should say leaders, get caught up in the moment. They think that, okay, well, if we've achieved one... Um, act of um one act of valor that we can we can still pursue the enemy on the run and achieve another um set of um sets of valor um but that doesn't always happen sometimes your best offense can be your best defense or your best defense can be your best offense it's a double-edged sword that works both ways uh, what did General Harrison embark upon come May 12, 1813? Well, for starters, he assigned control of Fort Meigs to Brigadier General Green Clay. Secondly, on May 12th, the general, being none other than Je Mr. Uh, Harrison himself, left the Maumee Rapids where he traveled en route to Lower Sandusky with the objective to meet Governor um, or Governor Return uh, Jonathan Meggs directly. And, you know, it's one thing for uh, Jonathan Meggs to be Governor of Ohio, but what I found interesting is that even as Governor, not just so much Governor of Ohio, it's probably fair to say that, um, that most notably in the Northwest Territory, you're... Um, territorial governors, even when William Henry Harrison was a territorial governor of Indiana, he was leading uh, militias. He was leading um, armies in in the Northwest before the um, before the onset of um, of uh, de of uh, Congress's declaring war on Britain. 
most notably, at, uh, of course, at a Tippecanoe Canoe in uh, Prophetstown in late uh, November, in late 1811, most notably in November of 1811. So the bottom line is that uh, these uh, territorial governors are doing more than just governing their territories. They are playing an active role from a military perspective. But I think it would be fair to say that that it would almost be... Um, it would almost be a given that they would have to because there's more to, say, just being a governor than, say, issuing executive orders. There's more than just um, calling out orders from a um, from an executive um, post. The executive branch might as well might as well have uh, existed beyond um, beyond uh, the governor's desk. So. For uh, General William Henry Harrison, um, it's more than just uh, doing business with officers in the inner circle. He is meeting with uh, not only with territorial governors, but in this case with Governor Meggs of Ohio to discuss um, what needs to be done um, from a militaristic standpoint going forward. So, ironically, for uh, re- for, gov- for um, Governor Return Jonathan Meggs, he is commanding a 1,000-man force whom, uh, whom sought to relieve the current troops at Fort Meigs. And as much as General Harrison wanted to accommodate um, Governor Meigs's 1,000-man force, he was unable to do it. Why was that, folks? Well, the War Department, before there was such a thing as the Defense Department, it was known as the War Department. Uh, the War Department had... Um, regulations, uh, not just regulations, but regulation procedures or a protocol to go by. So these, um, the men that uh, were under Governor Meggs's command, they didn't lie uh, motionless. They, um, they were able to um, see some um, form of action, but they were not able to uh, go to uh, Fort Meggs at the current uh, moment. What uh, General Harrison did do was that he sent multiple groups east to Cleveland while retaining the two companies in uh, Lower Sandusky under um, the command of, um, of uh, Governor Meggs. So in other words, uh, basically Harrison was forced to uh, make a compromise in that he basically said, okay, uh, to the governor, hey, look, you know, as much as I'd love for your men to come to Fort Meigs, unfortunately, I have to go by what the War Department is telling me. But if you can keep your men here, we might be able to use them somewhere down the road in the foreseeable future. Uh, how did uh, Brigadier General Green Clay go about exercising leadership at Fort Meigs? He was very bold and determined in going about proceeding forward with strengthening the fort, which included um, making sure all structures were evenly leveled to overseeing the rebuilding of all blockhouses, including storehouses, as well as the stockades and powder magazines. So in other words, I think it's fair to say Brigadier General Green Clay is a progressive, not trying to sound political, but... Uh, what I mean by progressive here is that he's um, he wants to move forward. He doesn't want to uh, go backwards. He's coming up with new bold ideas that perhaps 
were not implemented the first go-around, and it would be fair to say that even General Harrison would know this, and General Harrison would certainly be all for, um, for uh, making these necessary improvements to the fort, because if there should be a second attack, maybe it would be fair to say that the fort needs to be, um, not that the fort wasn't um, well prepared the first go-around, but sometimes it's good to uh, learn from uh, whatever mistakes you made, even if you came away victorious. You have to ask yourself, okay, what can we do going forward that we didn't have in place prior to this battle so that if we are confronted with the enemy again, the chances of a particular section of the fort maybe wouldn't uh, receive as much extensive damage like it did the first go-around. So new gun structures were built to better fortify uh, a battery-less a battery wall on the west side as well as the northeast corner of the stockade. Observation patrol units surveyed <laughs> the battlefield, and I was blown away at this, folks, but this did happen. Um, yes, I applaud uh, Brigadier General Green Clay for... Um, for assembling observation patrol units, not only to survey the battlefield, but to uh, go about um, gathering anything that you might find of use that could be um, to your advantage. And what I mean by that is that the observation patrol units gathered large numbers of left-behind British equipment, most notably cannonballs. Man, to think all these cannonballs were left behind... I don't know what the British were thinking. Of course, you can't, maybe you can't lug everything with you when, uh, but some things maybe shouldn't be left behind. But when you're in a bind and you know that you need to retreat immediately, some people would say, well, the cannonballs can be replaced. But as for your life, that can't be. So the Americans uh, were smart enough, uh, American uh, troop units, uh, per observation patrol, were smart enough to take advantage in, in seizing the left-behind British equipment, most notably the cannonballs, because these extra cannonballs meant the fort would now be better supplied with them going forward versus when the siege took place. Remember, um, General Harrison only had like 360 uh, pounds of, um, of ammunition at his disposal uh, during the first siege, so something tells me that that with all of these extra cannonballs that were um, that were um, seized by us by the Americans, we're going to easily we might be for all I know we could probably be somewhere close to about a thousand pounds of ammunition. I I don't know. I just I I just know that it's going to be far more than three hundred and sixty. Uh, what became the big challenge from within uh, the U.S., from within the United States Army during the spring of 1813 after British forces de departed back to Amherstburg? I hate to say this, folks, but if there was one, if there was a big challenge, and there was, it had to do with discipline matters. I would, I would have thought that discipline matters would not have been an issue, given how far we've come especially in Ohio, unlike in uh, Michigan. But I think it's fair to say that no matter where an army travels or where an army is stationed in a time of war, 
that discipline matters will arise no matter how big or small the problems are. So Brigadier General Clay dealt with multiple uh, issues uh, regarding discipline that involved troops breaking rules and regulations. All around uh, where Green Clay himself had no other choice but to implement court-martials. What's going on here? I thought there was a lot of discipline. I thought there were enough men who cared about the well-being of everyone around them. It seems like now all of a sudden, just because there's a break in fighting, that we're doing, we're, we're undergoing a complete 360 reversal from within. Just because we're not fighting, it doesn't mean that we can choose to act and behave in, in whatever way we want that could be seen as unbecoming to the officers above us and to, and to your fellow uh, comrades, your other uh, soldiers. So Brigadier General Clay did modify the problems to the best of his ability by instituting specific instructions when it came to appropriate appearance amongst the troops. And these were some, uh, I've listed some unique uh, ones here that um, General uh, Clay came into, um, had to encounter, or um, implemented rather, I should say. How about a start and ending times for all drill procedures? Okay, so basically, this is when we're going to be drilling in the morning. This is when we're going to be drilling in the afternoon. These are the start and end times. Do not show up late. If you show up late, uh, expect a punishment and expect to get an earful not only from the commanding officers, but maybe from some of your fellow uh, soldiers who, who share the same rank as you do. So, yes, how about with uh, start and ending times for all drill procedures? How about uh, describing... Uh, the necessary guidelines for when bathing, swimming, laundry, to fishing, to whenever these activities or uh, essentials could take place. You know, it's so easy to take for uh, granted, folks, you know, bathtubs, showers. Soldiers in 1813 did not have the luxuries of a shower or a bathroom. So it is fair to say, folks, that for many of these soldiers, if they bathed, you almost have to wonder, they weren't bathing every day. You might be lucky if they were bathing once a week. And, of course, there were no such thing as modern-day laundry machines either, too. So doing laundry, folks, uh, was a lot harder compared to today's um, revolutionized um, methods of uh, being able to do laundry. And in terms of fishing, you know, we have to remember there are no grocery stores. Um, so, you know, the Army will supply um, up to a certain amount of food, but sometimes you as a soldier may be required to help out by, you know, either going out on a hunt or perhaps uh, fishing along the Maumee River in this case. And whatever fish amount of fish you can bring in, it's not just for you. It could be for say, maybe 10 other people, if the fish alone that you catch are enough to provide for, say, 10 to 12 people at most. So uh, supplies to, um, to um, amenities back then, whatever they had, they were able to survive with, but 
it was not anything that bore resemblance to today's um, excessive modern-day uh, amenities that, yes, are great to have, but if we're not careful, take it for granted. And in terms of swimming and all that, you know, there are no swimming pools, so they would have been swimming in the Maumee River. And um, I know I'm going to get off subject here real quick, but I'm gonna, I promise you I'll get back. When I think of swimming in a river, I kid you not, when John Adams was president, our second president, when he, when he was president, folks, I did learn some years back that he actually, um, when he needed to take a bath, he swam in the Potomac River. Now, he, he didn't know any better, folks, but that's what he did. And, of course, uh, Washington, D.C. was considered the wilderness. Uh, a lot of people did not like the idea that the nation's capital was in Washington, D.C. Well, I mean, he was uh, president uh, when the capital was in Philadelphia, but towards the end of his presidency, uh, when the government uh, moved from Philadelphia to D.C. under the, uh, residency, the Residency Act of 1790, which gave um, Philadelphia the nation's uh, capital spot for 10 years until 1800. Uh, so yes, Adams, when uh, the, when, uh, the government relocated to D.C., John Adams was known for uh, taking um, baths in the Potomac River. But I think it's fair to say, to sum it up in a nutshell, that the Potomac River back then was much more uh, cleanlier I'm not trying to knack on the Potomac River, but it was probably fair to say in 1800 that it was probably much safer to to have done what President Adams needed to do, unlike in um, today's um, world. So, yes, in terms of uh, cleanliness, that was one of the biggest problems uh, facing Fort Meigs from within regarding all living arrangements. Garbage, trash... These two things were heavily heavily present within soldiers' rooms. <laughs> I don't think they would have probably had any such things as modern-day garbage and trash cans. So, Brigadier General Green Clay has instituted new procedures for cleanliness that had success, but many troops failed to adhere. And talk about some negative repercussions. Mid-spring of 1813 saw an outbreak of measles and mumps cutting half of the 2,100-man force. Yes, it's fair to say that probably a fair number of these men might have died, but others got so sick to where they were simply just not able to be on um, the active uh, roll call duty, if that's how you want to put it. So... You know, it's one thing to listen, you know, you have to listen to the orders. If, if you don't uh, maintain cleanliness um, and you get sick, then you only have one person to blame, and that's yourself. Uh, did the current state of peace within Fort Meigs become uh, disrupted on June 20th of 1813? Uh, believe it or not, it did, folks. How so? Two men whom came over from Detroit addressed the commanders, including Brigadier General Green Clay, that Indian warriors under Tecumseh's tutelage, including British troop forces, had all assembled by agreeing upon to plan for a second invasion against Fort Meigs. So what do you know, folks? The British and the Indians really, really are intent on wanting to uh, launch a second invasion against Fort Meigs. They're looking for payback. 
New intelligence findings prompted multiple troop parties to be sent from Fort Meigs to uh, flatten the remnants of British batteries to where they could no longer be used. This was uh, done um, across um, the Maumee River, given where uh, Fort Miami was. They were all, once they were um, once they had made their way across the Maumee River at, at uh, Fort Miami. They were also uh, required to do some other things, like cutting all the shrubs, vegetation, to pruning. Not just around Fort Meigs' outside, but the uh, other outer uh, boundary areas as well. By cutting vegetation, that would have meant that the uh, British would not have had access, the same um, access to being able to, um, you know... Um, believe it or not, to engage in some form of uh, farming, uh, given that the intention would have been to have uh, stayed there long term. And we're not just talking, you know, farming for, you know, just for one or two families, but for, you know, multiple troops. You know, the troops need to be able to have um, more than just uh, salted pork and, say, hardtack. You know, they, they do need uh, vegetables, whatever vegetables uh, can thrive in the, in the, in the uh, region of uh, northwest Ohio. You know, the British, the British troops need them uh, for survival. So in the midst of uh, gun carriages getting repaired to cannon being remounted, Brigadier General uh, Clay sent out riders advising General Harrison of these new report findings, along with ordering lead officers from such areas as Upper and Lower Sandusky to Fort Finlay, and there is a place in northwest Ohio called Finlay, uh, which is south of uh, Toledo, uh, near Faustoria. So, yes, these the riders had advised General Harrison of the new report findings, along with uh, ordering the lead officers from Upper and Lower Sandusky to Fort Finlay by having their units uh, ready to go as enemy attack appeared very likely. June 28th, uh, eight days after the first intelligence findings rep were reported, uh, saw no further updates or new findings. While all of this is good, you know, we certainly can't uh, sit back and rest on our laurels and say, well, nothing's going to happen. Wishful thinking. Although it is fair to say that by late June of 1813, Fort Meigs is in much better shape. It is much more adequately staffed or manned, including well-stocked with essential provisions. Well, hey, I like to hear that. Who wouldn't, especially if you're on the side of the Americans? Uh, did something unique take place at Fort Meigs on July 4th, 1813? Well, of course, I think it's, it's fair to say that July 4th being America's birthday. So, yes, uh, something did... Um, unique uh, take place. Um, America, or the United States rather, I should say, celebrated her 37th birthday. The soldiers at Fort Meigs awoke at dawn to the sound of cannons, or firing of 13 altogether in honor of the young nation's independence. This was a day of celebration. The afternoon saw 18 rounds fired, including an array of music, and toasts, or I should say speeches, in honor of America. Now, when my wife and I were in Ohio at the start of last month, folks, we got to do something really cool on July 4th, and that was to have uh, visited historic Fort Meigs. 
and we saw a reenactment of of the festivities um, marking the celebration of America's 37th birthday back on July 4th of 1813. We got to listen in on the toasts. We got to listen in on the speeches decrying uh, the British um, actions uh, or their hostilities, uh, most notably impressment of our uh, sailors on the high seas. We got to see the cannons being lit and fired. We heard the huzzas. And of course, all of us participants, including my wife and I, uh, or spectators in the crowd, I should say, all got to chant, huzzah, huzzah, as if we were out on the, on the actual uh, field. It was a day that I uh, certainly wouldn't have uh, forgotten, knowing that, um, knowing just how vital this fort was in um, being able to, um, in being able to um, achieve what it was able to do. Of course, I don't want to get carried away just yet, but historic Fort Meg certainly was. Um, it was certainly a um, a vital fort. A fort that um, that really um, how do I say it? It was a fort that um, basically um, helped ensure um, that the Northwest Territory would not succumb back into the hands of the British. In other words, the British already had control of Michigan, and Ohio seems to be right in their grasp, even though they've been repulsed once. They want another fight. And just because we won the first round, it doesn't mean that we it doesn't mean that we can't take the enemy lightly the second go around. Who's to say that the British and the Indians might have more numbers in terms of men? Who's to say that they could be better supplied than we are? Yes, I know I mentioned earlier that Fort Meigs is in better shape than it was the first go around, but that doesn't mean anything. So, uh, moving uh, forward, uh, what did Fort Meigs experience uh, shortly after all July 4th festivities had uh, commenced? Well, a few weeks after July 4th, activities in the form of regular harassment against the fort took place amongst small groups of Indian raiding parties. Well, I think it's fair to say that maybe the American forces knew that it was just a matter of time before the Indians and the British lived up to their promise based upon what those uh, two individuals whom had uh, come over from Detroit um, had advised um, the American officers, including Brigadier uh, General Green Clay. And to give you some proof of what um, happened just a few short weeks after July 4th, um, there was a party of 18 American troops whom were all mounted on horseback. They were attacked by an Indian party while journeying to the Maumee Rapids to help protect a flour shipment. Now, flour, folks, you know, for cooking purposes. We're not talking about flowers that you put out in your garden for beautification purposes. So anyways, these uh, the uh, party of 18 uh, American troops mounted on horseback they did not see this attack coming because the Indians that fired on them were um, very well disguised, probably were um, hiding in the woods, engaging in guerrilla-style fighting, a.k.a. irregular um, 
irregular um, tactics. So yes, um, uh, some of the um, members of the um, 18 party um, troop, 18 yeah, 18 member troop party were attacked by the Indians. The um, and you're probably wondering exactly how many Indians did attack this 18 um, man party of um, mounted uh, horseback riders. Three Indians, folks. Lieutenant Elijah Craig, who was the lead commanding officer, had issued a retreat. Yes, on one hand, there may not be anything wrong with issuing a retreat. But three out of the 18 um, 18 man party didn't um, listen to Lieutenant Craig's orders. So that means probably about 18 or 19 or about 17 or 18 percent stayed on to fight the Indians. So you have three men going up against three Indians. Well, one of the three men attacked um, an Indian. He um, he uh, killed he killed um, one of the Indians. So when Lieutenant Craig got back, he advised Brigadier General Green Clay of what happened. Brigadier General Clay does not like the action that uh, Lieutenant Elijah Craig took, and that was to retreat. What Lieutenant uh, Craig should have done, folks, was that he should have um, he should have gotten everyone into he should have had them all engage in a fight. In other words, he left. It was bad enough he retreated, but he let three of his own men behind. He left three of his own men behind, knowing that perhaps they might not have come out alive. Well, those three men did come out alive, folks. And um, a man by the name of George Wyant, whom was the soldier that shot and killed the Indian, he was promoted right away by uh, Brigadier General Green Clay to the rank of ensign. As for Lieutenant Elijah Craig, guess what happened, folks? He was arrested and removed of his command. In other words, for acting like a coward and not putting up a fight. He may not have held, he may not have been leading the command like General Brigadier General William Hull was at Fort Detroit. But the last thing the American Army in Ohio needs is for an officer to act cowardly, and that is to not put up a fight against the Indians, even if it's a small number of them. Did Brigadier General Green Clay engage in sending out scouts to drilling the soldiers, including paying very careful attention to Fort Meigs's general safety? Yes, he did. Uh, all of the above, which was a good thing, but yet it didn't stop another Indian party from attacking artillerymen by the name of um, an artilleryman by the name of uh, Lieutenant Peters and his party whom somehow miraculously managed to escape unharmed. So, uh, come late evening of July 20th, British ships are spotted via their sails. And what I mean by sails here is uh, the material pieces that would be placed on a mast designed to catch the winds. We have to remember, folks, even in 1813, we still have plenty of, sh of uh, ships that are relying upon the winds or the, the, the direction of the winds to move. 
You know, six years earlier, Robert Fulton in 1807 invented the uh, steamboat, which successfully sailed up the Hudson uh, River to Albany and back. And he did it without the use of wind. While that was revolutionary for its time, and it would play a revolutionary uh, factor as uh, ships, as many ships did ultimately switch from uh, relying upon um, wind speed via um, steamboat engines, or steam engines, I should say, during the War of 1812, it's fair to say that all ships are going to rely on um, sail. I can't imagine how much uh, money Congress would have uh, had to have allotted just to uh, come up with steam engines. And who's to say they could have, um, who's to say that they could have um, performed successfully most notably in a time of war. So, yes, um, once again now, uh, given that British ships have been spotted via their uh, sails, Fort Meigs is now once again about to face another confrontation with British and Indian forces. It's like that saying, can we really catch a true break? Well, I think the Americans knew that, that, that whatever break they had was going to be a short one. They just... Sometimes you never know how quickly the enemy can come back. Uh, following their defeat from the first go-around, the Indians had demanded ever more so that Colonel Proctor launch or conduct a second attack on Fort Meigs with the intentions of reducing the fort's overall stronghold. Well, Colonel Proctor agreed with the Indians, but even he's facing issues from within his own army. Well, many of his own troops... Equipment, artillery, and provisions are going to a fellow by the name of Captain James Harriet Barclay, whom is the lead commanding British naval officer. I'm wondering if the British Navy is going to be um, engaging in a, in a big fight somewhere on Lake Erie with American forces. I have a hunch. Uh, whom did Colonel Proctor have to turn to for uh, requesting additional Indian fighters? This is where the dilemma becomes um, all the more uh, challenging for Colonel Proctor. Given that so many of these Indians really, really want to stick it to the Americans at Fort Meigs, and this is, this is really the prize. This to them is a huge prize. Well, Colonel Proctor is going to turn to a fellow by the name of, uh, who he just so happens to hold the rank of colonel himself. His name is Robert Dixon, whom is the British Indian agent, or British Indian trader agent in Detroit, or I should say at Fort Detroit. And uh, Robert Dixon, I will say this much, uh, married into um, an Indian family. I'm not sure from which tribe, but um, but he obviously married into an Indian family, um, given the connections that he um, holds, um, and also assuring that not only the family that he's married into, but the the families that make up the greater tribe are are protected not only by the British government, but 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 uh, protected against any uh, would be uh, encroachments or um, attempted uh, settlements by. Um, by American settlers coming uh, west, um, coming east to west, going from east to west, I sh perhaps I should say. Uh, late June of 1813 saw Colonel Dixon 
having assembled around 1,400 Indians from multiple Western tribes, whom came from both Detroit and Michilimackinac. Michilimackinac being uh, well to the north, uh, that was the first um, the first uh, taste of success for uh, for the British before uh, Brigadier General William Hull surrendered uh, Detroit to uh, British Colonel Henry Proctor. Now, um, as for Western tribes, uh, it's probably fair to say that uh, Colonel Robert Dixon would have uh, gathered um, Indian warriors from the Wyandotte Nation, from the Huron Nation, Potawatomi, um, Kickapoo, Wea, uh, Sauk, uh, Fox, uh, Menominee. After all, there is a place in Wisconsin called Menominee Falls, or, Menom- or Menominee Falls, however you pronounce it. So, he wasn't just getting, you know, two or three um, bands of uh, Indian tribes. He was getting anywhere uh, from a dozen tribes or more uh, whom had um, warriors that were willing to uh, risk it all. So, yes, the extra number of Indian warriors willing to fight or take up arms was a great thing, especially if you're on the side of the British. Because the we do have to keep in mind that there were Indian tribes that did align with the Americans in the War of 1812, but the vast majority had aligned with the British. Well, here's another problem for Colonel Henry Proctor. It wasn't so much that he had extra numbers of Indian warriors willing to take up the fight, but the biggest dilemma that really was up his sleeve had to do with food rations. Why food rations? Well, Indian warriors, including their families, were consuming folks anywhere from around or just over 1,400 rations per day. 1,400 Indians, folks. It's not just the warriors themselves, their families. So their families could include, you know, yes, a wife, a brother, his wife, 10 or 12 children. You know, we don't have grocery stores, folks. Um, We don't have meals on wheels at this time. Not that there isn't such things as uh, charitable institutions, but the closest thing you can get to a charitable institution during this time would be the local church. But even the churches alone probably would not have been able to have um, helped out everybody, depending on where the loyalty stood. So if you have um, Indian warriors and their families consuming around or just over 1,400 rations per day. More Indians on board meant further strains on a food supply system which never was intended to exceed its maximums or minimum requirements to feeding those, and who do I mean by those, folks? Soldiers. being British soldiers, I should say, whom were the formal recipients to these... Um, provisions via the food supply system serving, given that they were the uh, primary um, servers uh, to the uh, king's army. What action did Colonel Proctor propose to take by mid-July? He aimed to launch a strike against an American camp at Lower Sandusky, which was confirmed to to have been not well defended. Colonel Proctor wanted the Indians to go along with this, Indian allies, I should say. 
but they did not want to have anything to do with attacking this American camp at Lower Sandusky. To me, this was a bad choice because on the part of the Indians, start off somewhere small. And then once you have um, achieved your mission there, then go on to Fort Meigs. Sometimes it's better to strike somewhere first before going to the ultimate target. You need to have a little momentum on your side before before you take on the big the big objective. Well, given that the Indian allies did not want to attack this um, to attack this uh, American camp at Lower Sandusky, Colonel Proctor um, decided to abandon that that um, option and come July twentieth. He set out once again for the Maumee Rapids with just shy of 350 British regulars, including an Indian force of 300 to 400, including a few artillery pieces. Fort Meigs and its uh, fortifications were in, in a much better state of repair. They were better manned. Uh, Fort Meigs was better manned, armed, and well-equipped with a ration supply, folks, a food ration supply, listen to this, that would be able to last until December. That, to me, is pretty awesome. And here the British are struggling to keep up with their food rations supplies given they have taken on an abundance of more people being Indians. And I'm not saying there was nothing wrong with that, but when you take on more people, your food supplies become strained. And not just for a couple of weeks. They could be strained for three to five months or longer, they could be strained going into the start of, of the new year. Uh, given what lied in store for a second invasion of Fort Meigs, how did Brigadier General Green Clay proceed forward? Clay himself ordered once again, like the first go-around, to have small structures be thrown up the length of palisaded walls interior, including all soldiers sleep with their arms and am and ammunition ready to go at any moment's notice. I know it sounds crazy for soldiers to be sleeping with their arms and ammunition, but given in the event you get attacked, you need to have your um, essentials with you right away. You don't have time to um, go get a shower, then put on your outfit and inspect your um, your rifle or your musket and make sure that it's all um, in prime shape. You don't have that kind of luxury. Time may not always be on your side, but what does need to be on your side is that you have your necessary essentials to, to be ready to go at any moment's notice when the unexpected happens. Don't assume anything, but be prepared when the inevitable does come about. Just like during the previous, or I should say the first siege attempt, the British, the British flotilla, a.k.a. fleet, went about unloading their troops in establishing a primary encampment along the north shore near the uh, remains of where Fort Miami had stood. Well, we've uh, covered a lot of ground in this uh, episode, and when I'm on the air again uh, next time, we're going to talk more about the second attack and how um, the British go about carrying out their strategies and how the Americans respond back and finding out who will prevail and whom, um, and whom fails. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air with you all, and thank you for being such ardent listeners. Without you guys, I don't know where I would be, but uh, you all have helped uh, make this uh, 
all the more possible. So thank you again uh, for everything. No matter where you live in the world, uh, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.